keep us from looking at it. But your word brings us to the needs of people today. And Lord, we pray for Tony, who is a, a faithful worker here at the church, who's in the hospital. We pray, Lord, that the, you would touch him from head to toe with healing. His spirit, his soul, his mind, his body. Restore him to us. We pray for Mary Noel, Lord, to uh, his wife. Give her strength to help him get through this. Pray for Phil Eusebi sitting in the back, uh, courageously fighting a tough diagnosis. We pray for your power to touch him today. We pray for the needy in Peru, Lord. Wendy is back with us today from her mission trip, and Karen is back. And Lord, they saw a need which is beyond our understanding here in America. We just pray, Lord, that you would give us, give us your son, give us Jesus to guide us. He knows exactly what we need to do. We just need to listen. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Hi, Donna, that was beautiful. We, most of those songs were written before we were born. And there's something about the deeper wells that uh, it's almost like the people from generations past were singing that with us. And it just had a, a beautiful, gentle feel to it. And that's what we have to cultivate as we look at our challenge today, which is poverty. We live in one of the richest parts of the richest country in the world. And we have thousands of homeless people. We've got children who are facing in food insecurity, the new word for hunger. We've got older people who, and working poor who are hit by inflation and having a really hard time paying for things right now. And there's something in the inside of every heart of a believer that says uh, we need to do something about that. But then we see the size of the problem, so we think, what could we possibly do? What could we possibly do? Well, I think there's a lot we can do. And my goal today is to, to give us, to release us, or to free us from that sense of being frozen up and not being able to do something about the challenges around us. The truth is, Christians are the first, if there's a world natural disaster, the Christians are the first ones in and the last ones out. We have, a, we have an instinct to want to do something. Wendy just came back from her mission trip. We're going to have her and Karen next week tell us a story about that. Won't you be able to collect your thoughts? I'm sure you've got jet lag and everything else right now. But it's so good to have you back. And uh, yeah, she showed up here at church, just, uh, just got off the plane. So we're going to look at poverty. So we're looking at Acts 4, 32 through 37. If you'll turn to that on your phones, tablets, computers, or real paper, whichever you happen to have. This is a snapshot of the early church. How many of you here are the oldest child in your family? Okay, you're the responsible ones. How, <laughs> how many of you are the neglected middle child? The one in the middle, the, the peacemaker. 
among everybody else. Who, have, who among you are the, uh, the baby of the family? Some of you raised your hands for all three, so it's just... <laughs> this is the baby picture of the church. I, there's, I was the oldest, and there's one and a half baby books of pictures of, of me when I was first born. I was the first grandkid on both sides, so... Some of you have no idea what a flashbulb is, but I, I'm still traumatized by flashbulbs because of those early years. Everyone took pictures of me. My brother Mike has a three-quarters filled baby book. My brother Tim has like two pictures somewhere. He's the youngest brother. And so we, we tell him he's adopted and mess with him as much as we possibly can. You don't look like our parents much, you know, that kind of thing. So anyways, uh, this is the baby picture of the church right here. Acts 4, 32 through 37, the church had just been founded at Pentecost. There was no Christian church until now. Look at your Bibles and look how big... Zach, hold up the part of the Bible that's before the church, which is the thick part, and the thin part is the part after the church was formed. So for most of the Bible, there was no church, which surprises a lot of people. But this is the very beginning of how things looked. Now, it's a bit of a glamour shot, because Luke was trying to show that he wasn't lying, but he was definitely putting the best spin on things because he wanted the Christians to come across as good citizens. He was not anti-Roman. He was not anti-authority. He was saying, you can be a Christian and be a tax-paying regular man or woman, and you can be an upstanding citizen. And so he wanted to show that the Christians were not some radical, subversive group, that they were people that you wanted to have as neighbors. So he would often pick out those things which are the most positive. And you can tell this is sort of a glamour shot here. Now, the full member of those who believed were of one heart and soul. How many of you think that's just a little bit of a stretch in any group? Uh, if you've been married, the chances of being one heart and one soul is challenging, although it's doable. But with a large group of people, it's really hard. Uh, so he's saying in general they were, which is probably true. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What kind of grace? Great grace was upon them. This was pointed out at the prayer meeting this morning. Great grace was upon them all, and when you're grace-filled, you're gracious. <sighs> probably for most of you, I won't do your funeral because I'm older than probably half of the people here, but for some of you, I will, and the best thing you can say about a person is that he or she was gracious, Some was, was good to people, was grace-filled, was uh, a person who had a gracious way of being with everyone, and that's what I strive for. I would love people to say that. So whether or not I'm gracious, younger people here at my funeral, somebody say I'm gracious, that would be helpful, be a good thing. But th that sort of graciousness was upon them all, and when people are feeling gracious, they're feeling generous, they're feeling warm thoughts about other people. And here's the verse I want to focus on. There was not a needy person among them. Now please hear me, this is not prescription, this is description. I want you to get this really clear. When something is described in the Bible, that doesn't mean we're commanded to do it. It doesn't mean we're not. It's just a good example. When Jesus says, go feed the hungry, reach the lost, baptize, make disciples. Those are commands. That's prescriptive. The Ten Commandments are prescriptive. Those are things we should do or not do. Sometimes in the Bible there's a description, things people are doing. Repeat after me, descriptions. descriptions. 
are not necessarily prescriptions. If you have an older brother or sister who does something really well, let's, let's say she's the drum major of the marching band or whatever, and that's a good example, doesn't necessarily mean you should be the drum major of, of the band. So this is a description here, and there's a lot of worthy things to follow, but nobody's saying here that we need to do this. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and bought the proceeds and brought the proceeds of what was sold. So they sold their property and they brought the proceeds to the church. We have a generous church, but not that generous. So we'll <laughs> and, laid at the, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, I don't need to tell you that Karl Marx loved this verse. Uh, this is one of the verses that got him going with the redistribution of wealth and everything else. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, Bar is son, Nabas is uh, encouragement, a Levite, a Levite means he's of the priestly caste, a native of Cyprus. Sold, he, Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So there were no needy among them. Now I know that within this church, people often help each other out without telling anybody. And I often hear about it because I'm often the mediator in what goes on. But people have paid each other's rent in this church. They've uh, helped each other out through difficult times. And that's what we call mutual aid, where we help each other out. And then when that person gets helped out, that person helps other people. It's sort of, it's sort of contagious. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to look at the complexity of the problem of poverty. But then at the end, I'm going to give us a way we can all do something constructive and doable about it so that we can actually make a difference. Who wants to make a difference in the world? And we kind of have to because Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in. How much poverty is there in heaven? None. So, and the Bible tells us it's God's will that we all live in abundance. That's in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 because it's God's purpose that we have more than we need so that we can give to others. Because being generous is an incredible blessing to be able to be generous. Most of you are incredibly generous. And it's a great blessing to be generous. And so the Bible's, Bible tells us that the, the goal for all people is that we have more than we need so that we can give to others. So poverty is not part of God's plan. Who thinks God's a fairly good father? Does God want any of his children starving or struggling for housing and those kind of things? Of course not. And so we want to definitely look at that. Wendy was on a mission trip because of that instinct, that instinct to do something constructive about what's going on. And I want to say from the beginning, there's lots of kinds of poverty. It's not just monetary poverty. Some people have poverty of relationships, very few friendships. Some people have poverty of, of mind. They've never developed their intellect. Some people have poverty of, of vocation. They're not in the right job for what they should be doing. So it sounds like I'm talking about money, but there's lots of different kinds of poverty. So you can kind of fit in what other kind of poverty you're thinking about. Jesus says the poor you will always have with you. Now he wasn't saying this to us. He was saying this to his disciples. 
his disciples were complaining that a woman had broken open some really expensive ointment and was anointing Jesus for his burial before he died. That could have been given to the poor. And Jesus says to them, the poor you will always have with you. He didn't say with the whole human race forever. But people often use this as a way of saying, well, we don't really have to worry about the poor because we're always going to have the poor. Be careful about using Bible verses to relieve yourself of the responsibility of caring for others. And this one is the most misused one I know. Uh, one of the most misused I know. Well, we can't do anything about it because the poor you'll always have with you. Well, Jesus was saying that to his disciples because in their lifetime, yes, the poor he will always have with them. But that's not God's plan for today's world. And I also want to say poverty is getting a lot better. The United Nations is predicting that within 15 years, destitute poverty, I'm talking about the people with like flies on their eyes and the whole thing, the whole the picture you see, will not be a thing anymore. There'll still be people who are homeless and some real challenges, but that destitute kind of poverty is almost done with. Do you know that the life expectancy in Africa is twice what it was when I was born? Female literacy is higher all over the world by multiples. There's all kinds of good things, and poverty is dropping. A poor person during the Great Depression is a whole lot different than a poor person in America today. A poor person in America today is likely overweight, likely has a cell phone, and a whole bunch of other things. And so it's a whole different thing than what we're normally looking at. So we have to look at degrees of poverty also. The poor you always have with you, it's really important that we don't use that as an excuse not to do something about it because the whole rest of the Bible, as Linda reminded us this morning, says that we should care for the poor. It's also important that we avoid, and sometimes I do this. I'm going to be really straight with you guys today. In my flesh, I'm not drawn to poor people. In my flesh, in my mind, I tend to think it's their fault. If it wasn't for the Bible, if it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't have a lot of compassion for poor people. Blaming the victim is a way of getting out of doing anything. And yes, how many think a lot of poor people, they've made some decisions that have created the situation they're in? They're still in it. And some of them have kids, for goodness sake. And we do have to care about that, just because they've made, who here hasn't made any mistakes? Just one over here. And we have a class in denial after, afterwards. For, for <laughs> but the truth is we've all made big mistakes. I've made huge financial mistakes in the past. I invested in an oil well in, in Texas that got us nothing. It, we've all made mistakes financially. Who here has ever bought high and sold low? You know, that's just kind of how we do things sometimes. And sometimes we suffer because we make bad decisions financially. Going to debt, those kinds of things. Just because someone's made mistakes doesn't mean we shouldn't care about their poverty. So we need to pay attention to that. So we've got to be careful about blaming the victim. We've got to be careful about saying, oh, the poor you'll always have with you. Injustice is not okay with God. It's just not. Uh, for some people to have more power than others, for some people to uh, uh, oppress others, is not okay. I have just translated most of the little books at the end of the Old Testament. Just finished Malachi for the New Passion Translation. And all of those prophets are really upset about two things. One is injustice, the other one is corruption. That they come down hard 
on these people, the people who are in charge, because you get to the top. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting to the top because people who take responsibility tend to get to the top. If you say, put a load on me, I'll do that, and you get it done, people move you up. That's, there's nothing wrong with taking responsibility and then getting authority that comes with it, but once we get there, we like to feather our nests and vote in such a way that we keep everyone else out. It's pretty easy to do. It's so easy when you get to the top to let a little corruption come in. And we can start to, to sort of preserve our thing to make sure that other people don't get what we have. And go to the Old Testament, read the book of Jeremiah, then start reading the little prophetic books, all the ones you forget which one's in which order. It'll burn, it'll burn the hair off your head just reading that stuff. It, these, these prophets are drop dead serious that injustice is not okay that everybody should grow up with the same chance, that everybody should get a shot at things, that we should never use power to oppress other people. And it's, tempted, it's tempting to do it in soft ways. We can do it in lots of real complicated ways. How many of you think that there are corporate leaders occasionally, and a lot of them deserve the money they make because they're making huge profits for their companies, but it's real easy to, once you get to the top, to keep voting yourself bigger raises because you're in charge now. And Congress can do that, Senate can do that, I mean, corporate leaders can do that, because you're the deciders, so you keep deciding to give yourself more stuff, and it can really add up quickly. Injustice is not okay with God, and corruption is something we all deal with a little bit if we have some success in life. We want to protect our position, not just monetarily, but our position as a, as a leader, as an officer, as a board member, as a fill in the blank. It's easy to do. Little titles we have on our names. Oh my goodness. I work in higher education and some of the people I work with in higher education are such sticklers for their titles. It's Dr. Wilson, not Fred. You know, they, they, they want to make sure that they let you know that that, uh, that, that uh, thing is on there and they put it at the end of their name and the whole deal. The least of these. Jesus is very clear that how we treat the least of these is how we treat Jesus. Now, this might, send, this might sound a little um, prejudicial, but the truth is there's a lot more low IQ men than there are low IQ women. Go around 60, 65, 70 IQ, it's like 10 to 1 men. It's also the same on the genius side. Men have a real flat IQ curve and women have a lot more of a bell curve. Men and women have the exact same IQ average, but there's a lot of men who simply... What did we used to do with men like that? We gave them jobs where they would haul stuff around and do hard work and labor. Guess what? All those jobs are gone. They're replaced by machines, automated. Our culture needs to figure out what to do with less intelligent men. They've got other gifts, by the way. Just because intelligence isn't one of them, they've got other gifts. And we need to find things to do with them, and we really don't have anything to do for them. What's the majority of homeless people? Men. What's the majority of people in jail? Men. And most of them have really low IQs. We as a culture need to look at what we're going to do with lower intelligence men. It, we're not doing a good job of that, because you can't even say that out loud or you get in trouble, but it's true. The least of these, how we operate with the least of these, how we interact with the least of these, the less intelligent, the less wealthy, the less powerful, the less strong, the people who are marginalized by their health and other things. How do we operate with mentally 
handicapped people and the people who don't have what it takes to stand on their own sometimes. And in a culture as rich as ours, children should never go hungry. Just, it should never, ever happen. There's got to be a way to make sure that that doesn't happen. The elderly, grandmas in, in Florida shouldn't have to worry about eating dog food or something like that because they can't afford anything else. And people with disabilities who can't support themselves. How do we take care of those people? And I'm an Anglo. Many of you are Anglos. Some of you are Latinos, some of you are Asian. But Anglos are the worst at taking care of extended family. Very often Asian cultures and Latino cultures are way better at that. And we just sort of hope that that person doesn't show up. And it's important to take care of those people in our families. A list of things. I am not making a case for the government doing more for the poor. Uh, the government turns everything into the DMV really quick, and it gets really bad. It's, it's not the solution. They spend way more money than the poor people need on the poor, and, it's, and the homelessness thing is just growing. And it's not because they're bad people. It's that there's no incentives in the system. There's no incentives to help people within the system. The incentives are to not help, actually, the way it works out. And where did Jesus say, help the poor and outsource it to Caesar, Herod, and Pharaoh? Never said that. It says help the poor, but he says it never said it's the government's job. So, the idea that you just by voting for you know, the government to fix this, uh, good luck. It's, they've been working on it for a long time, and it doesn't seem to be helping much. The breakdown of extended families. Extended families help a lot with children, with elderly, and with, with handicapped people. How many of you live in a three-generation family right now? In the same house. Mark? One. We have one here. Uh, I guarantee you in, in places where there's a majority of people living in three- and four-generation households, there's a whole lot less poverty. And a lot less people out on the street. And there's been a breakdown of the extended family. And the extended family used to be where people would help each other out. And that doesn't sound like good news to me because I have a lot of weird relatives. You know, and I'm just thinking, wow, would that be, that would be something to, to have to do that. Absent fathers. The biggest cause of poverty in this country is absent fathers, statistically. Men who aren't around. It is hard to raise kids by yourself as a woman. It is tough. My wife was gone for a week, and I, I was scrambling just keeping the house running. It's just, just, there's so much to do. I mean, and I, I'm afraid she's going to ask me, so did you get the car fixed while I was gone? No, I didn't get the car fixed while I was gone. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was telling Tamara this, this last week, I don't know how single people do it. I, I really don't. It's, it's hard to, to keep everything rolling. It is tough. It is really tough, and absent fathers... I, I just want to say to you women who have raised kids by yourself, God bless you because it's hard and you've done a great job. And it's, but we've, we've created a culture where people just disappear. You ran into that in Peru where men just vanish from the families and they don't, they don't even know where they are. And which sinks the whole family into incredible poverty. The family, the, the disintegration of the family has not been good. And we tell our young people, oh, family formation, save that till you're 35, 40, 45, you know, don't do that right away. And, and what happens is people get fragmented and they never form families. We have to form families to help each other out. 
and it hasn't been good. We mentioned the Lord's Prayer earlier. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and there's no poverty in heaven. So we want to continue to pray heaven into earth. That's just what we want to be shooting at all the time. I've been on some mission trips to Jamaica, to Africa, to Southeast Asia, and I hope all of you will go on a mission trip, by the way, and I'm sure Wendy would agree, having coming back from one. We offer more mission trips than any church our size in the universe. And they're not very well taken advantage of. And just to get out and see the rest of the world and to see the way things are, it's a real education. We've got a whole bunch of them coming up, and we'll be talking about that next week when Wendy and Karen get a chance to share. But one of the biggest problems in the global south is not lack of resources or the people are lazy or anything else. It's corruption in those countries. The leaders are incredibly corrupt in some of those places. There's no rule of law. There's no independent judiciary. There's nowhere somebody can actually take someone to court for a grievance. And so it, even, the, even the judges are... John, you want to get this door here? I think they're put some stuff up together. It's kind of distracting. But the corruption, without rule of law and without the ability to make a contract and stick to it and have that enforced and without some other things, it's really tough. And we need to continue to work in the world for a world where that corruption is lower. And corruption is creeping into our country too. And we have to really fight that. The people at the top tend to feather their nests. And once corruption starts, poverty increases, even in a wealthy situation. In our mission trip in Jamaica, we had to pay 50% of the things we were bringing in goods and services and money to the Jamaican thing we were working with orphanage. We had to pay 50% in what I call corruption fees just to get stuff across. And that's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So we have to be looking at corruption and the prophets of the Old Testament hated corruption. Secularization, in other words, removing faith from the public, public square. I was just in England. And it's fascinating how that's just not the case. Now, England's got a lot of problems. But when the Queen has a funeral, the Archbishop of Canterbury is there and does the, preaches the gospel at her, at her funeral. And there is, I was talking to people, there is a Church of England, State Church of England, within walking distance of every English person who lives in a village or, or a city. And that is seen as necessary and in the public schools, they learn prayers and they do all kinds of things and always have. Secularization, here's the problem with secularization. If you have a secular state, you stop seeing other people as made in the image of God. If that is not taught to our children, then you don't have to care about people you don't like. Who thinks that's behind some of the division in our country right now? You can just hate the people who disagree with you. You have a license to hate. Why? Because we've secularized. And the more we secularize, the less we see our enemy as made in the image of God, the less we give human dignity to everyone else, including poor people. This is a big deal, folks. Western civilization is built on the idea that everyone is made in the image of God. And our whole justice system is based on it. You pull that out. It's like, what, what's that game you play with all the wood? Yeah, down it comes. I'm all for the government staying out of churches and everything else, but I'm not for a completely secularized culture because a secularized culture will be a, a culture with a license to hate or ignore or marginalize. 
and we have to get that back. The founding fathers weren't for one denomination or one kind of religion, but they always talked about providence, and they always talked about the Almighty, and they always talked about a sense of, you know, God being in charge. We're endowed by our what? Creator with certain inalienable rights. That needs to be recovered, and it needs to be recovered really fast. And folks, people say, well, we shouldn't have the Ten Commandments in schools. Folks, the Ten Commandments are not any one religion. Anybody who believes in a higher power can look at the Ten Commandments. It's not Christian. It's not any Muslim could look at the Ten Commandments and go along with it. These are good things. It's not a sectarian thing. This is, this is universally human. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Tell the truth in court. That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. Practicalities. Recognize when we are abandoning responsibility through using arguments that keep us from dealing with the poor. And it's easy to do. Recognize the fact when we start to, we say, oh, the poor will always have with us. Or it's their own fault. Or whatever. Fill in the blank. Christians really can't do that because Jesus says, as you've dealt with the least of these, you've dealt with with me. And nobody likes dealing with the least of these. They're hard to deal with. Who here has had a really hard time helping a person who is really troubled? It's, it, is, it is a piece of work. I'm still, I still have a bike in my garage from Brian, a homeless guy, and he told me to keep it for him. I'm still keeping it for him. I haven't heard him in three years. I don't know if he's alive. It's a nice bike. I hope he didn't steal it. I mean, it's... it's It was Bud Potter and I worked with him for ages. It's hard. It is really hard to work with needy people. And it's easy to say, well, I just can't do this anymore. But to, to work on key people that the Lord brings you to, I think, is important. Appreciate the progress that we have made with poverty. Those of you who are my age, we have made incredible, incredible progress against poverty in this world. Look at any statistic. It's way better than it's ever been. There's hundreds of millions of people in India and China who are now in the middle class. When I was a teenager, there was almost none. It was just poor people and rich people. And that's changed. Hundreds of millions have moved into the middle class. And they've done it when rule of law starts to come in and when corruption starts to go out, good things start to happen. And it can happen everywhere. Don't be fatalistic. Oh, it's just going to get worse. It's all going to burn. I hope Jesus comes back soon. That is not the gospel. It's just not. On earth as it is in heaven is the gospel. Ask for a heart for the least of these. I have to do this constantly because it doesn't come naturally for me. It doesn't come naturally for me at all. I have to ask the Lord, give me a heart for the least of these because I don't like dealing with the least of these. It's uncomfortable. They're challenging. They're... Kim, you had a difficult situation recently. It was just hard. It's It's tough. But something inside of us as believers says, we've got to do something, and we can. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Listen to the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit often tells us, what should I do if a homeless person asks for money? Ask the Holy Spirit. I once bought a bike for a woman on the pier, because the Holy Spirit said she needed a bike, and the Holy Spirit said do it. Other people have been panhandling. The Lord says, don't you dare give them money because you don't want to reward what they're doing. You have to ask the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit and he will teach you all things. This is so, 
This is why I love being in a spirit-filled church. We actually think that God talks to us. I mean, imagine that. It, it really helps a lot. Rather than just having a rule about what you're going to do when you see a person who's begging, ask the Holy Spirit what to do. There's no way he's not going to tell you. So ask him, and he'll tell you, and do what he says. Fight corruption wherever you can, and don't let yourself get corrupt. Some of you, in a few years, will be a lot more successful than you are now. And the temptation to be corrupt will grow. It grows with rising through the ladder. And I want you all to rise. I want you all to be people who can give to others and have an abundance. But be careful when you're rising, because it's so tempting to be corrupt and to protect your position and to protect what's going on and to keep other people out of your treehouse happens all the time. And do not accept a secular country. If people tell you you can't do spiritual things in your place of work, in your school, or those, just tell them, no, I'm going to pray. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about my faith. We have freedom of religion in this country, and it shall not be curtailed. The Bill of Rights says so. There's nobody can tell you you can't bring your faith into your public life. And bring, when you're bringing it, bring in the fact that everyone's made in the image of God. That changes ethics really fast. I'm going to go just a little off the slides here. Because I was just, um, somebody just came to me. Um, here's where I'd like to help. Rather than looking at the gap between what we should be doing and what we're doing. I'm here, I should be doing this for the poor. The problem with gap thinking is it immobilizes us because the problems are too big. Rather than that, look at the places where the Lord has allowed you to help other people and it's worked. I call that gain thinking, where there's been a gain. Build on that. Expand on that. Bill goes around and on beaches and gives money to people and prays with them. And he was talking about how he buys rice and he's, he expands on what he's already doing. Think of a time when you've helped someone where it was effective. Do more of that. It's probably how you're wired. Not all of us can reach all of the poor people. But you're probably really good at reaching one kind of needy person. And it might not be financially needy. It might be socially needy. It might be a whole bunch of other different kinds of needy. But you're probably good at something there. Was there a time you helped someone out and it really blessed you? That's the power tool God gave you. So don't let the size of the problems and our freezing up and lack of we're here we should be here that just that's a recipe for freezing up locking up and doing nothing and I've been there there have been times where I've looked at the need in this world and I just think oof so I just watch more TV and eat more donuts you know you just you just seriously you, you just you just withdraw out of it rather than engaging the gospel is gain thinking. Think about it. It's because of what Jesus has done for us, therefore we can, we can help others. 
gap thinking is, I'm here and God wants me to be here. And you see this big gap, and what happens? We do nothing. Rather than look at the places in your life where God is blessing you, where he's moving things forward, where things are happening, where other people are being blessed, and I guarantee you, because I know a lot of you, I guarantee you, you've blessed a lot of people in your life. Look back. Ask the Lord to show you those times where you've been effective with people who needed help. And ask the Lord if you can have more opportunities to do things like that. And stay in your lane once you figure out what you're good at. You, you don't, not everybody has to work at a food bank. Not everybody has to walk the streets and work with homeless. There's, there's something you can do to make a difference if you pay attention to what the Lord's already done in your life. Robert's son David and I climbed up to the top of, of um, San Gorgonio Peak this week. We got to the top, and there was a couple of young people, and they, you could tell they were rich. They were a prosperous young couple, and they were up there. They just did Mount Whitney two weeks ago, and they all had like thousands of dollars worth of gear and equipment and the whole thing, and they were super confident like frat people or something. They just had that sort of vibe around them. And they were just, you know, all that. And then they left, and Adriana walked into where we were sitting. It was windy at the top of the hill, 11,503 feet. Windy and cold, so we're in a little sheltered area, and Adriana comes walking in, in tears. What brought you here? I'm trying to decide whether I want to stay married anymore. Do you have any kids? Three young ones. Whoa. (laughs) We just saw this super successful couple and then comes Adriana. And I said, if you don't mind my asking, what's the biggest problem in the marriage? My husband is gaslighting me and alienating all my friends from me. And there's nobody I can talk to because he wants to justify leaving me because he's got a girlfriend. Whoa. And her need was just infinite. And I came on this hike to try to figure out what to do. And David, who was with me, just said the wisest thing. He says, do you have people you can talk to? No, my friends have been alienated from me. No, do you really have people you can talk to? how about your mom? Go, oh, yeah, I've got cousins. I, there are people. It's, we established it, people she could talk to. But I said, kind of a risk. I didn't know where she was at faith-wise. Can we pray for you? I've asked that question for decades, and nobody's ever said no. People want to be prayed for. And the Lord gave me the words to say. Way smarter than what I would have said. Who's ever had that happen? It was quite a ways down the trail before David and I could even talk. We ran across her a couple times and she said, thank you so much for the prayers and give us a little fist bumps. That kind of thing works for me. I need to do more of that. Do more of the things that work 
to help other people in your life, and I guarantee you there's things you've done that work. Think gain, don't think gap. Don't let the, the needs of the world overwhelm your goodwill, which is there. You're in church because you believe in helping people. Don't let that overwhelm that instinct you have. But do it the way you're wired and do it the way God's already been doing and training you to do. Alan, who leads our Alpha course, he says a prayer every morning. This is just how he, I'm not saying be like Alan, but be like Alan in the fact he's intentional. He has a simple prayer when he leaves the house. Send me one. One person to connect with. One person to pray for. He says he's never prayed that prayer without it happening. And he's really good and very non-threatening with people. It, it, it's a really good thing for him to do. And I bet she's changed the lives of dozens of people doing that. He says, when I forget to pray that prayer, it often doesn't happen. Find ways that the Lord can work with you. I'm going to invite the worship team of all of one person up here. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Find your way to do it. Keep doing it. And you will make a big difference. All of us together will make a huge difference. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that none of these examples would be something that people feel like that they have to follow because each person here has his or her own way of helping. And you give us an instinct to do that. Help us to remind us of those times where we made a big difference in people's lives. When they had needs and we came through and their lives changed. And Lord, give us the confidence to know that we could do more of those things. Each in our own way. And if we're doing things the way you made us to help others, to help the needy, we don't have to worry about what else everyone else is doing. We just can do our thing. It is your will, Lord, that everyone on this planet has more than they need and can give to others so that they can enjoy generosity. and into our communities, into our families, into our relationships. Give us more practice at that one thing we're good at in helping people. Some of us might be able to encourage a child in a way that will change his or her life tomorrow. Some of us have brokenness in our lives to give us street cred with other people who are hurting. Some of us have gone broke and we can help people who have gone broke. Some of us have been abandoned by loved ones and we can help people who have been abandoned by loved ones. He will take everything, good and bad in our lives, to make us into people who can make a difference for others. As Adana saying, give us Jesus. Jesus uh, never asked us all to be the same. 
but he did say, as you've done, for the least of these, you did it for me. Amen.
but I just uh, praise and thank you for this this little community that we are in and um, the extended community that shares with us every week. And I just ask that you open up our hearts to hear the Holy Spirit move on us and to guide us into um, what you would have for us. We are called to love all people. We are called to uh, work for you every day. And I just love that Alan says, send me one. And I just um, ask that you open up our hearts this week and beyond as we start our days and ask the Holy Spirit to show us where we can be used each day. I just uh, praise and thank you for this little community and the extended community in this church. And I ask that you be with each one. In my name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great week, everybody. And uh, get to know somebody you don't know that well. And have some donuts. And have a great week. Bill. <laughs> <laughs>